Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm your lovely host, Todd Conklin. Ooh, you're in for today. So I don't know if you're ready for this yet. I'm assuming you are. But if you're not, today's a big, big day. Because today's the day I'm going to ask you to listen entirely in New Zealand. You can continue to speak in whatever native tongue and gibbering you use, but you're going to have to listen entirely in New Zealand because today's podcast guest, which I'm super psyched about, is a Kiwi. So get ready for that. But first, let's chat about some things because there's some stuff coming up that you ought to know about. First of all, enormous thank you for all the support you've got for the book. Unbelievable to me. Thanks for liking it. But more importantly, thanks for reading it. I hope it helps. And the feedback I've gotten has been really, really remarkable. Secondly, the work we're doing in the workshops, uh, the one coming up in March, that's super interesting as well. I think they're full, but if you're interested, we can still put you on. As for me, time is zipping by. The best part about this time of year is you can fantasize during crappy weather about what it's going to be like when the weather's not crappy. That is appealing at every single possible level I can come up with. So let me not jabber on because uh, there's quite a bit of content coming your way. So without any further ado, sit back and listen to the musing of uh, the topic of worker competency with Brent Sutton, and I'll talk to you on the back end of it. So uh, what do you think? Well, look, I think um, it's great to get a room full of like-minded people who have been on this journey for quite some time. And it was really good to be able to hear different perspectives. And uh, for, from my perspective, um, this whole uh, variation of what I call safety two is really coming to life. And um, the fact that in New Zealand we've got a regulator that's acknowledged um, the value that safety two can bring from the point of view of engaging the workforce and about providing better outcomes is really setting the scene worldwide. Why do you think they did that? Why did the regulator bring in Daniel? Uh, and that's Daniel Hummerdahl, friend of the pod, Daniel Hummerdahl. I think it comes back down to that the CEO, Nicole Rosie, um, was uh, ex-corporate. And um, she can see the, the, the benefit that Safety 2 can provide. And um, a lot of organisations have, have realised that without getting workers engaged at that grassroots level, that their um, systems or systems of work are going to continue to fail. So introduce yourself to us, for because most people aren't going to know you. Well, actually, some people on the podcast are going to know you, but most people probably aren't going to know you. Yeah, so look, um, my name's Brent Sutton, and um, my funny accent tells you that I'm from a little country called uh, New Zealand, um, which has been the home of the Lord of the Rings for, for quite some time. And uh, I've been in um, uh, risk management around occupational risk, around people for about the last 17 years. And before that, I spent um, over 20 years in the information technology risk market. And if you think about uh, when, in the 1980s, when, when I was in the IT industry when I first started, we realised early on that users or people would always break your technology. So what did the IT industry look like in the 1980s? 
like a Tron machine kind of? Uh, the suits lot, were very just a shiny. lot of Pac-Man. The suits were very shiny. <laughs> um, the odd mullet that are along here. Uh, lots of uh, champagne. Oh, nice. Really nice. Absolutely. Um, and lots of shoulder pads. Yeah, shoulder pads. Always shoulder pads. Everyone looks better if they're V-shaped. <laughs> and my only regret was that I had the opportunity of buying shares in, in a software company that had, that had just been formed and I thought it would never go anywhere. And that company was called Microsoft. Oh, yeah, that's 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 trendy. Yeah. It's not going to last. No, it's Isn't that too bad? <laughs> oh, the power of retrospect. That's that's awfully powerful. What, what brought you – so what brought you from – so I totally get coming out of out of uh, uh, IT that you understand and had to manage reliable systems. Like I, It's a perfect fit, and lots of people, lots of people that, that listen to the podcast are on that side of the house. What took you over to safety? Because I do think that part of your journey is pretty interesting. Most IT rely like like I'm not sure I would see Adrian Cockcroft uh, on a construction site looking at fall protection, but I guarantee I'd see him, you know, looking at cloud computing for Google. Sure. Uh, look, it was totally by accident. Um, in, in relation to that, uh, we had that little event called 9/11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, came along, yeah. and I was working for one of the large uh, American companies one of the, in the top three in the world. And as a result of uh, that event, they decided that they wanted to reduce their workforce by 10%. And they decided to take a lottery. And that if your number got called up... Really? Yeah, if your number got they called up... They reduced you by lottery? By lottery. Huh. And and I've got to tell you, um, it was actually really, really good. Yeah, I was going to say, it's probably the best thing ever no happened. control over Yeah, it. I agree. So I was flying back from uh, the States... And I arrived to work on the Monday morning, and I was boxed up. Nice. They even yeah. they even cleaned your office. Yeah, checks in the mail, <laughs> and it was all good. Nice. So I decided that I had to reinvent myself, and um, there was a, uh, a a company that has gone public that was developing technology in the health and safety space, and one of the government agencies uh, who does workers' compensation. We're looking to create tools to help small businesses grow. And that tool was a uh, hazard library. Oh, really? So um, I formed part of that team and we successfully bid for that piece of work. And we produced over one million CDs. Wow. And on those CDs were the common types of hazards and risks that businesses would face. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And that was my introduction to this whole concept of, of safety. What brought you to the new view? Well, I, I think I always realised that people by their nature will fail. And that the current view of safety was that it was the workers that failed, therefore the workers were at fault. Right. Okay? Yeah. And if they're at fault, there had to be consequences right. for that failing. And from a technology point of view, would come from an environment that you knew that your users would fail. You had to have what was called error trapping built in so that when they did fail, it didn't cause the system to crash. Because of the system crash, that then had an impact. Right, right, absolutely. So this notion of allowing people to fail and fail safely was already ingrained with me with 20 years of this, of this concept. So when I came to that little conference that you appeared at, I said, my God. 
Which was that was a couple years ago. Yeah, uh, and it was that big meeting in yeah. Wellington or in uh, Auckland, Auckland about four years ago. And you appeared on stage in shorts, and and I and I said, "Who is this guy?" And he told us some really interesting jokes as part of the introduction. Right. And I said, "I like this guy." Yeah, I'm hilarious in New yeah. Zealand. Yeah, and I also like the fact that you were highly disruptive, and that people around me were going, "This guy's a lunatic." I'm saying he's not a lunatic. I said he, he actually is, um, has a fully comprehension of actually what's going on out there. So he's actually telling the truth. And the rest of the people are in denial right. about it. And it's a very bitter pill for people to swallow. Yeah. It's, yeah. Sometimes hearing that is hard, I know. I Absolutely. So I then started to do a lot of research. And I think I've said too, I, I, did, I read a lot of Siddy Decker's books. Yeah. And, and, and I struggled. A bit. Um, I looked at also Dr. John Green. I love John. Yeah, yeah. Out, of, yeah. out of the UK. And I saw John about six months ago at a, at a conference. He's in Canada right now, you know. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And uh, Eric Honagel read a few of his books. Yeah, Eric. And once again, I felt like I'd actually achieved a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> having, having read that. But the point here is um, there were these um, threads that kept coming through. And... I then spent probably about six months uh, trying to, um, what I call plain English, what those threads were, uh, which you talk about transparency. Right. So how to take them as very complex and how to make it more transparent. Right. And then we tested that with different groups of people. And what was really interesting is that we, we developed a technique to try and reach leadership. And what I kept hearing from business leaders around safety is that it's, it's all common sense. And I said, well, look, if it is common sense, or for common sense to exist, there has to be common knowledge. Right, yeah. And for common knowledge to exist, there has to be common understanding. Right. And do you believe that people are like machines and that every person has the same level right, of nice. knowledge and understanding? And they said, well, of course, because that's why we have rules. So we developed this uh, technique and it takes about um, 15 minutes with a group of leaders. And we present to them a, a, a picture, a scene. Okay, and in that scene is some hazards. And we give them a bit of a scenario. And, and we ask them to describe to us what could happen in that scenario. And we give them five minutes to write down as many things that they believe what could happen in that scenario. And then from each person, we get them to give us a number of how many things they recorded. And typically that number will vary, but the variation in the room is two and a half times. Wow. So my, most people might get four or five. Some people might get as high as 10, 11, or 12. But the fact is that the variation in the room of leaders was two and a half times that. Is there a fixed number? Is there a right answer? Well, no, the, the thing is constantly, it's never below two and a half times. Okay. It's been as high as four times. Yeah. With engineers, it was actually four times. Yeah, that surprise, makes sense. Kind of, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but then what we said, we got them to identify what were their top three. And 85% of people identified the same top three. And then what we did, we then put up all that list and what was interesting is even the person that got the highest score 
did not have the same number of things that the entire group had. And at that point, the penny dropped. At that point, they realised that if we don't engage workers at a group level, we cannot get a full picture of how work is really done. Nice. So then they said, well, how do we do that? And we said, well, this is a little thing called learning teams. And learning teams is simply that engagement tool to understand how work is really done. And for us to look at that from the point of view of what, how we think work is done, and we, and we work the difference through that. So when we deal with those leaders, we don't talk safety too. We don't talk hop. Right. We just basically say that this notion of common sense right. can't exist. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. How's that work? I mean, it must work great. It is. And uh, I'm up to about 150 different groups so that's pretty that good. I've done this with. Yeah, you got pretty and, good data set. And the numbers are fairly consistent yeah. um, across them. Um, and, and then we, we, we push that next point, which was um, if we don't want people to, f- if we don't, if we want, we don't want people to fail, then how are we controlling risks? And your whole notion that it's the organization's responsibility to control risks and that risk is in the eye of the beholder was something really hard for them to, to grasp at, at that end. It really was. They struggled with that because they thought that was their, was their role. And what we basically said to them was that if you can't control the hazard at its source, so if you can't put in those high-level type controls that don't allow humans to easily defeat them, and you're relying on these administrative controls, then what has to happen? And that's where this whole concept of risk competency came in. Yeah, see, this is so interesting. Yeah. Talk more about risk competency. Sure. I actually think that's probably a super interesting topic at every level. It is, and the hardest thing was to define what is competency. Yeah, exactly. Because many people use proxies for competency. Uh Uh-huh. So, for example, we think about knowledge. And some people say, well, competency is, is knowledge. Well, knowledge is simply a proxy for competency. We talk about experience. We talk about qualifications. So they're all the common language that is used. But we want to push the boundaries further. We want to say that competency was a willingness for workers to undertake their work, knowing the constraints and the capacity of the system. And that competency was also the practical and critical thinking skills that people needed to be able to operate within the constraints and the capacity of the system. And that changed the whole dynamic. Because then what had to happen is you had to determine what that meant. So the examples are... Yeah, I was going to say, what's it mean? Yeah, I mean, Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, so we, we created a... Uh, process and you have to work out what workers are supposed to do. Now what's really fascinating is that most of the documented systems don't actually describe that very well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So we well, do you think that's a function of that really we don't know really what workers do? Um, I, I think what we talk about is companies have never spent time and effort to describe what good looks like. Is it because they're more fixated on outcome than method? Which is something we kind of talked about well, the last few days. Well, it's interesting. They're all keen to blame. They're all keen to know what bad looks like. Oh, yeah. We studied the crap out of bad. Yeah. But seldom do they actually get to understand what good looks like. And to work out what good works 
looks like, we actually have to work out how work is actually done. Which is really the whole premise of of, of So the blue line, we have Absolutely. to sort of understand Absolutely. And the then, kind of normal variability. Correct. And then we need to understand the risks that are associated with the worker's task and activities within that. And then we need to know what is the nature of the risk um, of the control measures in place. And that goes back to context. That's what Shane's been talking about today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, got, you, understand, you have to understand the nature of risk. So why does it exist? When does it exist? So what is the nature now, of risk? If you had to define that. Well, look, it's really interesting. How do you define risk? I mean. Well, in actual fact, there are. And don't use the insurance thing. I'm no, 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 no. Um, probability times severity. There, there are a couple of interesting standards that exist. And, and in particular, there's a machinery standard called ISO 12100. Uh-huh. And that actually defines the nature of risk for machinery very, very well. It says that you need to understand the limits of the machine. And you need to understand the limits of the person. Because when the machine and the hazards of the machine and the person comes together, it creates the hazardous situation, which is the context of the Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. So in actual fact, a lot of these standards have actually created this framework. They just use horrible words to describe it because they are standards. And so I would say, if I can think, you can tell me if I'm thinking ahead, but so if we look at risk around sticky, around fatality and yes. serious events, we'd want to know the limit of the controls and the limit of, of the, the person. person. Correct. Yep. Mm. I know. There's going to be a lot of people listening right now going, hmm, because that's really – Yeah. So first of all, it's very, very, very interesting. It's also it, – it's within the realms of doable. Yes, and I mean, and you can kind of understand the limits of yeah. controls. Scaffolding only works this high or this far. Um, uh, you know, you're only as good on fall protection as you are on your your fall protection line, your main line, your rescue line. Absolutely. And and we're even going to talk about how you can actually measure and assess that. Yeah. yeah well, the, the limitations of the person. I mean, I suppose there's there's physiological limitations that you probably can't assess. Like if you haven't had eight hours of sleep. Like they would pilots, sure. right? Or or you can't drink for 12 hours before shift. Or uh, But I think the fatigue stuff that's being done actually in your part of the world is very interesting because they look at limitations of human beings. Yeah, and, and look, um, um, I, have to say, I have to say that the Canadians are actually way ahead of everyone. Really? On fatigue Absolutely. study? The Canadians um, um, recently republished uh, a standard which is um, managing psychological risk in the workplace. God, I don't know anything about this. Where have I been? It's a free standard. And it's a standard they created four years ago, but it got ratified again last year. And they've actually created what's called an implementation guide. And they've basically said, here are the different risk factors that you need to consider as part of managing this type of risk. And here is how you can approach it in a small business. Here's how you can approach it in a medium business. Here's how you can approach it in a large business. So what's really interesting is that they just come out and say, here is a standard. They said, here is an implementation guide to help you in that process. And here are the type of expected outcomes that you should be looking for. And here are ways that you can measure and gauge whether those things are being effective. How's it working in real life? I mean, how's it working with the people you work with? Well, look, it's what really, industry? Logging, fishing, what are you working with? In uh, New Zealand, it's construction, logging, it's, it's, fishing. So once again, I'm man, trying to think what kills people in New Zealand. So, so the, the killers are forestry. Yeah, forestry and fishing. And, and, yeah. and, and fishing, absolutely. Um, the, the maiming, as we call it, 
um, you know, less harm is in the manufacturing side. So, so once again, what we find is that that mobile plant kills, fixed plant maims. So that the number of incidents is much higher in the uh, manufacturing sector. Yeah. In that way, um, and of course, I have to share with you that agriculture is way up there. So yeah. Farming, farming. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but sadly, um, like everything else, um, if we go back to the competency of workers, um, what we talk about is is when is competency critical. So when does competency become that last line of defence? So if we consider competence to be a control, when does it become critical? And we think there are three areas that it becomes critical. Yeah, you have to tell me because I'm, yeah. I'm wanting to push on you hard on this one. And it's when supervision is limited. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, when workers work alone or work remotely. Agriculture, yeah. Yep. And when workers are having to deal with unfamiliar circumstances. So uncertainty. Absolutely. What's the difference between unfamiliar circumstance and variability? Normal variability. Uh, for me, a good example could be a, a night shift worker that uh, is working on a, on a machine in a normal routine operation and, and they encounter some jamming condition. I, maybe they're the same, yeah. The, yeah. 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 So it's that whole thing. And if we then recognise that competency becomes that last line of defence, then we have to try and work out what does that actually look like? Yeah, so that's my question. Yeah. What do we do with this? Yeah, and but the thing here is um, being able to um, measure competency is, a, is, a, is more on a what I call a continuum. And what we talked about earlier today was the fact that to work out the competency, you need to understand the complexity of the task that a person does. And you need to consider what are the environmental demands being placed on the person. So a good example is... Um, uh, I want to dig a hole with a shovel. Well, the task complexity of that job is fairly low because you can work out which end's the handle and which end's the pointy part. So I figure out you have to work out which person you're going to hire to dig your hole. Yeah, but it doesn't require a lot right. of you know, training. Yeah, no, it's... Okay. Yeah, it's... And if they're digging a hole in a field, then the environmental demand on them is fairly low. Yeah. So now we move that worker and we now give them a digger. And put them in a neighborhood. And now we're going to put them in a field. Oh, still so, in a field. Still in a field. Yeah. So what's happened now is that the uh, task complexity has now increased. But the environmental demand is still low. Still low. Still low. So let's move into the airport. Yeah. So well, that would make environmental correct. demand super high. Absolutely. And that is when competency becomes so critical. That's interesting. What's the difference between individual-focused kind of old view and competency-focused new view? So, so once again, um, old viewers, um, there are, you can either um, basically uh, require supervision, work alone, or can train others. So it's, it's, it's very, it's all based on a, on a level. Um, the new view is that it's a, it's a continuum. And what you need to do is you need to be able to assess and measure where a person sits on that continuum. And it goes back to this principle that as adults, we don't, we don't um, uh, learn through layering information. We, we learn by identifying our gaps and filling those gaps with knowledge and then applying that knowledge through demonstration of knowledge, which is the basic principles of adult education. 
So a good example is, is competency is, is more than just observing performance, which is what the old view would be. Right. The supervisor goes out, says, right, he picks up the spade. He can identify the pointy end. He can dig it in the ground, and he can successfully remove tick, grass tick, or tick, sod. sign off, Correct. he's confident. And, and I think the new view is, is that, that competency is, is the relationship between um, what a person can do routinely and then the relationship of their performance. And it's not necessarily linear in that way. Yeah, so tell me more because that's really yeah. interesting. And competency, it cannot be inferred from the performance alone. And um, so then, what 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 do you use yeah. to infer competency? So, so it, it needs to understand why a worker does what they do. So local rationale, absolutely, within the constraints and the capacity, environmental of the conditions, absolutely. So what? So if I give you some examples, so I really that, like what you think. I mean, I really like the way you're thinking. It's yeah, really, and look, it's it's not my idea. I mean, I'm surrounded by an amazing team of of, of people, and I should give a shout out to my colleague Glynis um, McCarthy. And Glynis um, hates to be referred to as a subject matter expert, but she has worked in the adult education space yeah. for decades. Yeah. Yeah. And she knows the stuff backwards. Let's call her a wunderkin. Because <laughs> that's, that's, that that's, seems yeah. less insulting. Absolutely. Kind of, the subject matter expert. She's a wunderkin. So the, the trick here was that can you measure competency? Because for organizations to invest, yeah, so I think yeah. so I think people absolutely think they can measure competency. Yeah. I think actually what you're asking, if I may, is is the traditional way we measure competency actually sufficient enough to risk one's life? Yeah, and the answer is it's or, not. Or, or one's worker's life. Yeah, it's, it's not sufficient. On, yeah, it's oh, clearly. Sufficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we have the traditional measurements, which I'll talk about. And one is getting the person to um, demonstrate um, their understanding of the inputs. So that's no different. You do training, you get people to regurgitate yeah, yeah, yeah. what they've heard. Yeah, yeah that Nothing seems fundamental. There. I mean, that seems fundamental. Getting them to demonstrate their knowledge of the hazards associated with the tasks and activities. So that one I'd push on, Brent, because it's, I think hazards are incredibly difficult to identify in total, in, in completely. But I think you could, to me, it would seem like getting them to identify what we think the critical hazards are, the, are the, the sticky hazards. The sticky, uh, look, uh, and sticky, yep. we should explain to sticky if people don't know. Sticky stands for stuff that kills that can you. That kills you, that's yeah, right. Stuff that, yep. S-T-K-Y, stuff that kills you. But the sticky does seem to be kind of, I mean, it's it's... It's hard to make these platitudes and say everything's knowable, but knowing what's sticky, I think, is important. Knowing what will kill you makes a difference. Absolutely. Look, let, let me give an example, um, one that we've been working on the last year, um, an organisation that basically um, um, operates in, in the civil construction space, and they need to move heavy plant and equipment around. So you've got um, 40 different types of transport trucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're having to transport, um, you know, several hundred different variations of of equipment. So, of course, safety one would basically say we are 40 times 200 SOPs. So we'll create this huge plethora of paper, and my response is, well, where can the driver sit? Because we've got all these documents in the truck telling him what's going to happen for every single version of truck and every single version of plant that's going to go on. 
And this organisation was having a series of, of accidents and incidents where um, the loads would come unloose, strike cars, and do sorts of other property damage. And um, the normal response was blame the worker. Yeah, yeah. So name, blame, shame, retrain. Yeah, and a, a, better worker, a better worker would have done a better job. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we said to them was, well, look, I said, let us um, observe six of your good workers and let us observe six of your poor workers. Yeah, I'm nodding my head. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So first of all, we want to create a baseline, which is understanding what good looked like. Right. Okay, and more importantly, when we engage with those workers, we wanted them to demonstrate to us, these are the good workers, what was the underpinning knowledge and understanding of the whys of what they do and how they do it. So couldn't you have just observed six normal workers as opposed to six good and six bad workers? Well, what was interesting is, is the company said, well, we'll give you six that haven't had any accidents. Well, that's how they determine good, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I know, but I, I would say that's normal. Yeah. Yeah. And then we looked at six poor-performing workers in that type of environment. And we basically drew a couple of conclusions, but we wanted to actually validate that. We wanted to actually have uh, quantifiable evidence. And we suspected that there were issues with literacy and numeracy of these workers. Sure. So what we did, we, we, we developed a test for these workers. And in this test, we basically described to them doing a piece of work, and the questions got progressively harder on their literacy and numeracy skills. And what we found was that... Um, all the workers that had had accidents didn't have the ability to compute or calculate loads. So these trucks would have different mounting points. Right. Makes sense. The trucks would have different strops and chains of different weights. And where you positioned the plant on the truck, either forward or back, and how you mounted it down would be completely yeah. different. Yeah, that makes sense. And what we found is that these workers that had been unsuccessful in their work and had accidents were deploying a strategy of how they had always done it. Right, which is what you default to. Correct. And mostly, I would submit, that's worked fine for them. It has, up until, until that it didn't. point. Yeah, until it didn't. And the causation wasn't relevant. No, not, not Because at all. they did not have the ability to compute. So where do you take this? I mean, what's the future look like for you? What, where do you see this going? Well, so the, the future is to create competency frameworks where the organization can identify where their gaps are, where the skill gaps are in their workers, and how to fill those skill gaps to bring those people up to the knowledge level that is required to perform that job safely. Excellent. Yep. Can we talk again? I think this would be great sure. to come in. Let's come back and talk about it because I think actually you have probably planted seeds now for us to think about this problem in a much different way. Thanks, man. Hey, thanks, Todd. You're the best. What'd you think? Yeah, did I tell you? What's great about it is that actually the way Brent is thinking about this competency problem actually, in my mind, makes it simpler to understand and manage 
than complex to understand and manage. The biggest challenge, if you ask me, with worker competency is that we knew we need competent workers, but the tests we used to understand competency tended to be focused mostly on, well, Brent talked about it, sort of the worker ability to be competent. What he's bringing to the table is a way to judge the worker and the environment in which the work is done and to sort of calculate sort of with an algorithm. He talked about it a lot, this notion of competency at a much different level. It strikes me that it's doable, but what it really strikes me as is valuable. And between us chickens, I'm not sure how valuable our traditional competency um, uh, systems or tests or criteria have been in the past. I, I, th I think if you had the ability to sort of study well for the test, you could become competent. And I'm not sure being able to regurgitate the answers is really Brent's definition of competency. In fact, I would tell you I am sure that that's not Brent's definition of competency. So that's it. That's the podcast. Thanks for listening. Um, tell your friends. Subscribe. That makes a huge difference. Um, I don't know. Just generally hang out and be a good person. That seems important as well. Until then, learn something new every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, be safe. <laughs>